We really believe this, that inclusion drives economic growth. We like to think of a liberation economy, economy that all people have their basic needs met, where all people are feeling safe and secure, where all people have value, and that all people feel like they belong. The only effective way to build the economy is from the bottom up and the middle out, which is precisely what the folks at Liberation in a Generation are trying to do. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So this is a podcast, Nick, not a YouTube, but um, I'm guessing that a a lot of people uh, might know that we're just a couple of old white guys here. Right. Uh, (laughs) and, (laughs) And so we talk a lot about inclusion on this podcast. And of course, we talk about it because that is the core of our economic theory. We call it the golden rule of economics, that the The more people we fully include in the economy uh, in every way possible as entrepreneurs, innovators, workers, uh, consumers, the faster and more prosperous the economy grows. We really believe this, that inclusion drives economic growth. It's, it's It's an argument about cause and effect that we've made repeatedly throughout the life of this podcast. But, you know, when we, we talk about inclusion, for us personally, it's theoretical. It, it is economic theory. Uh, but as far as our lived experience, uh, I'm guessing like, like me, uh, inclusion hasn't been a big problem for you? No, no, definitely not, despite being Jewish. But, you know, as Jews, we, we generally pass. We've been included in this economy uh, from the very start, you and I. Uh, yes. But that's not the case. And for... as, as have our families. Right. And that's not the case for a lot of Americans, uh, because let's be honest, we live in a country with a long and profound history of racism that uh, continues to this day. Absolutely. And, you know, today we get to talk to uh, Jeremy Greer, who's the co-founder and co-executive director of uh, Liberation in a Generation, which is a national movement support organization building power for people of color and demanding what they call a liberation economy, something very much up our alley. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to chat with Jeremy about how they're thinking about the economy and how it needs to be transformed. I'm Jeremy Greer. I'm a co-executive director of Liberation in a Generation. Um, I've been doing that. We're an organization that's been around for about three years. Um, And we also have a podcast, Racism is Profitable, that can be found on all of your podcasting platforms. So, Jeremy, tell us about your organization. What do you do and what are you working on right now? Really, we want to build the power of of people of color to completely transform the economy away from what we call an oppression economy that uh, thrives off 
theft, exploitation, and exclusion to a liberation economy, an economy in which um, all people of color have all their basic needs met, uh, are valued, are able to thrive and have safety and security and, and, and completely belong. So as we do that every day by working with grassroots organizations that are building power to really advance transformative policies that'll bring that reality to life. Jeremy, are you guys a policy shop or an organizing? Tell, tell us more about like precisely what y'all do. Yeah, so we're, we're somewhere in between. So if you think about organizing groups, they're on the ground every day, mobilizing people to change policy, either at the state level, the local level. Uh, they door knock, they, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing people together around taking collective action. Yeah. Uh, the thing that we've learned is that a lot of those organizations, they're really, they're really fabulous at that. They build power. But one place that they that we heard that they needed some help was around doing policy analysis and particularly policy analysis around the economy and race and the way that intersects with race. So what we do is we offer our services free of charge to um, organizing groups and we partner with them to really bring that analysis to their campaigns to help strengthen and build their campaigns. And then um, also what we do is we bring in um, kind of new narratives to think about uh, different ways to understand and describe the economy because the current way that we understand the economy just won't bring us to that future. Um, you know, that kind of neoliberal rustic individual, you, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of way that mm -hmm. we understand the way the economy works just isn't going to bring us to the future. The other thing that we do is really help them bring in a truth telling about why the economy is the way it is, because that that understanding that people have really is rooted in blaming people. You're poor because there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And what we know is the reason that people are poor is because particularly people of color is that we have a system that has exploited racism for profit for a small group of few and exploited people. So the reason that people are in the position they're in is because of centuries of systemic racism and not anything they did in particular. And we bring that kind of analysis to people so that they can use that in their mobilizing work. So I, I love the name of your podcast, uh, Racism is Profitable, <laughs> but you mean that literally. It, it, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, explain that a little bit. The existence of racism throughout our, the history of our country has been a thing that has been used by the very powerful, the, the, the elite and wealthy, to extract value from people of color and to do it to make profits on the other end. And it's really fundamental to the fabric of the economy we live in, all the way from literally our economy sits on stolen land from indigenous people mm -hmm. and all the value that that land holds today was stolen and taken from a group of people. The, the way that our economy grew quickly um, before the Civil War was totally rooted in slave labor. And the way that we understand things like how we value an hour of work, um, how we value assets. A lot of those accounting practices were built on slave plantations. And, and a lot of the things that we have in our economy today and the way that we view certain workers, the way that we exploit certain workers, the way that the wealthy do that for profit is rooted in racism. And the, and the racism is what justifies the economy that, that, that we have. So yeah, it's literally, and what we do through our podcast is really Try to unpack that stuff. So uh, just last week, Solana and Devin um, on our team were really, really dissecting AI and how AI today is really mm -hmm. 
rooted in these algorithms that are perpetuating kind of racial biases that are already embedded in the economy and, and actually doing it intentionally to extract value out of people. So that's an example of what we get into on our podcast. And, and you're right, it, it is. And it, it gets into, you know, a lot of people look at it. You, you, I, I have these conversations and they think of the kind of, uh, um, because the legal racism is in the past that yeah. somehow... It doesn't exist in an economic sense anymore. But of course, when you have something that is grounded in several hundred years of uh, legal and systemic racism, I'm curious, the name of your organization, Liberation in a Generation, is it possible to liberate in a generation? <laughs> yeah, well we, we, well, we absolutely believe it is, uh, or else we wouldn't be doing this. But I'll tell you, there's a real statistic that hit us. So, you know, Solana and I, give you a little of our background, we worked at kind of national policy think tanks, you know, worked with a lot of, and I was, you know, I read the the, the list of guests you all have had on your show, and we partnered with a lot of those people and a lot of those organizations where we were before. But a report was done, um, one of our colleagues, uh, Emmanuel Nieves, did a report with Chuck Collins, you may, you may all know yeah, Chuck Yeah, I know Collins. Chuck. Yeah, so it was on um, this report that they did called Road to Zero Wealth. And there's a statistic in that report that is sometime by the middle of this century, Black and Latino wealth will be zero. And that like stopped us in our tracks, Solana and I. And we thought, wow, like there is a deadline in which there is no return. You know, it's kind of like the climate. Uh, there's a point in time where we can look and say, oh, there is no return beyond this. So we really need to fundamentally change the way the economy works for people of color in order to live into a different liberated economy. So the question is almost not whether it's possible, but can we afford as a nation, and particularly as people of color, to let that reality come into being? So it pushed us to say, okay, if we were to do that in a generation, what are the kind of changes that we would need to see in the economy in order to get there? And what kind of organizations are going to take us there. So that's why mm -hmm. we really are thinking about what are the bold transformative policies that would make that change. And for us, we believe it's the people who are building power, political power in communities are the ones that are going to actually deliver on that vision. And to put that in, in context, in that time frame, uh, by the time that uh, you have aggregate zero net wealth with people of color, people of color will be the majority of yes, Americans. That's right. Yeah, so that that's means right. the majority of Americans will have net zero wealth. Yeah. You know, this podcast is obviously devoted to tearing down neoliberalism in all its forms. Yeah. And, you know, we often reflect on the fact that neoliberalism is in some ways very similar to racism and sexism. It's just, it's a modality of oppression but for money rather than yep. race or gender. And, you know, one of the things that got me into the business, if you can call it that, of addressing inequality and neoliberalism, you know, sort of the neoliberal way of understanding economic cause and effect writ large was that I got a look at the IRS tax tables in about 2007, which showed income distributions. And in 1980, the bottom 50% of Americans shared 18% of national income, while the top 1% shared about 8%. By 2007, 
the top 1% had risen to about 22%, and the bottom 50% had fallen to uh, about 12. Today, actually not today, in 2020, for which is the last numbers that are available, because they lag, and unless you have better yeah. connections than I do to IRS, the IRS. Uh, uh, I do not. Yeah, okay, I, I, yeah, do, yeah, I do not. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the share of income that goes to the bottom 50% of Americans has fallen to 10%. And one of the things that, I mean, basically what I did is I took those numbers in 2007, I just stuck them into a um, spreadsheet and just assumed that the trend would continue for another 30 years. And, and, you know, your point was made by that analysis, which is that, you know, in another 30 years, you end up with an income distribution where the top 1% has something like 45% of all national income and the bottom 50% shares like 4%, which basically makes your point. And, and that 50%, by the way, includes a lot of people who are not people of color, yeah. right? Statistically speaking, there are almost three times as many poor white people in this country as there are black people. So, you know, the thing about neoliberalism is that although it leverages racism, it doesn't give a shit who it makes poor, <laughs> right? If, if you were trying to maximize wealth, uh, you will very happily exploit white people just like uh, black people or, you know, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, people of color have in our country been the most disadvantaged by these frameworks and systems, but there is a lot of common cause to be made <laughs> with white people who are in many ways being disadvantaged um, too by these incredibly stupid ideas. Yeah, and I think that the thing to think about, what, what I think differentiates the experience of people of color, because you're absolutely right, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of poor white people. Yeah. And, the, and, and, the, and the wealth and income distribution is skewed to the detriment of all of us. Yes, and correct. That is that is the real that is a truth, a true reality. The thing that happens with the reason why um, we focus on people of color is because there have been structural and systemic efforts that come together between private corporations and government, where the intent is to subjugate people of color to a lower class so that value can be extracted yeah, from them. 100%. And that's where that's where I think it deviates a bit which puts it to a place where the solutions have to be a little different. A good example of that is redlining. In yeah. the um you know before and if you've read um the Richard Rothstein's book The Color of Law, it talks about the way that intentionally the government yes denied mortgage loans to whole communities of people of black people so that not only could their wealth be restricted, but predators could go in there and extract wealth in other ways. And then also the government raised whole communities so that we could build highways, we could build pu other public utilities in black communities, which brought the value of those communities down. Yeah. So that again, the predators could go in and extract value. So I think mm -hmm. the difference for people of color is the relationship between public policy and wealth extraction. It, it creates a different dimension um, when, when you talk about, uh, that I would add on to your analysis no. No, of how right. wealth is distributed. Yeah. Are you familiar with Dorothy Brown's The... Um, oh, yeah. One of the things that I found most fascinating was in that book was when she talked about housing, that even redlining and predatory mortgages and 
other forms of legal or even illegal discrimination aside, the housing market doesn't work for black families the way it works for white families simply because whites prefer not to live near blacks and therefore white neighborhoods appreciate faster than black neighborhoods. Well, and, and, and that has to do with the fact that 85% of the market is white. Right. right. And like, the market yeah. the, right. the market serves the majority of buyers. Whoever they may and, be. Yeah. And it's that simple. I mean, that's just the way markets work. If right. the majority of buyers want to live in majority white neighborhoods, those majority white neighborhoods are going to appreciate faster. And, you know, in her book, she suggests that home ownership is not a great uh, wealth building strategy for black families unless they choose to be minorities in white neighborhoods. Instead, she suggests the stock market because there are no black or white stocks. And, and one thing to add on is that um, one of my good friends, Derek Hamilton, he often says uh -huh. wealth begets wealth. So right. the way in, peace, way in which people enter the housing market is they usually get some inheritance from a family member that they use to purchase a home. And that passing down is how the wealth sustains through the family. That doesn't and hasn't happened for black people in particular, but for most many people of color because that wealth has not been able to be passed down. And that is a real like, and again, because of structural barriers that have been in place. So that's so again, that that passage of the of wealth is why you get a number where like eighty five percent of the the home ownership market in a lot of places is white. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the one of the really nefarious parts of both neoclassical economics and neoliberalism is the way in which it ignores things like path dependence in outcomes, right? Because you know, market economy is what they call non-ergodic, which means that it, it's a system characterized by path dependence, luck, and compounding. And neoliberalism wants everybody to believe that if you're rich, it's because you deserved it, that you earned that place in society somehow. And if you're poor, that's because that's all you're worth. When in fact, most of the difference is a consequence of exactly the kinds of things you just pointed out, that both advantages and disadvantages compound over time in these systems. And this whole like, pill yourself up by your bootstraps, it's all your fault narrative, you know, it persuades people that those, those fundamental dynamics do not exist. So, you know, it's, in, it's interesting, Jeremy, uh, Nick asked you at the beginning to describe what your organization is, whether it's a policy shop or organizing. It sounds like you do very much the same type of work that we generally do, which is narrative work, trying to put the right narratives in the hands of uh, uh, these other organizations. What do you find to be your biggest challenge? Uh, from a narrative perspective, and because, you know, we struggle with Democrats all the time trying to t get them to tell a better story. Uh, what do you think the biggest narrative obstacles are? One of the big ones is, you, as, as you all have mentioned, the, the neoliberal doctrine is so persuasive that is really embedded in all of our kind of psyche. And for us to get to a place, and, and I include people of color in this, to get to a place where we can wrap our heads around the type of systemic change that needs to take place 
we really have to undo a lot of the teachings that we've gotten to this point. An example of this is your well-being should not be tied to whether you are able to work or where you work. Like you should have the ability to thrive in our economy. You should have income that you can use to take care of your basic needs, whether you are able to work or not. And that work is not a necessary, not does not have to be something that's just extractive. It can be something that gives you, that gives you pride. It can be something mm-hmm. that that gives that fulfills you. It could be all of these other things. But people have come to understand it as something that is extractive, and that their well being has to be tied to that. So, and that's just one example of the kind of re programming that we have to do to get people to a place where they could even wrap their mind. And I I heard you all had, um, uh, I can't, I'm blanking on who the guest was, but talked about a homes guarantee or not a homes guarantee, a job guarantee Mm -hmm. to even wrap your head around the idea that we could do that almost takes a rewiring of understanding the way that the economy works. And that's a huge challenge. The other challenge that I have, and it's in our name is the urgency, like we need to treat this with real urgency. And, um, you know, we we often at Liberation Generation think about, you know, Dr. King's The Fierce Urgency of Now, that we cannot just sit back and think that these things are going to work themselves out. The, the status quo, there's too many people invested in the status quo. And we have to attack this with, with urgent ways. And that's another reason why we love working with organizers so much, because it doesn't take a lot to convince an organizer of the urgency of, of what needs to be done. And, and so I, those are two things, two challenges that, that I, I think we have. And on the urgency, I feel like sometimes when we're sitting in boardrooms in, you know, Washington, D.C. or New York or San Francisco, where a lot of these like heady economic conversations happen. I, I just don't feel the urgency. Why, why should they be urgent? Everything is fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do think, it, it, no, I think this For is them, really, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you raised it because I do think that that's a real challenge. Like those with most closest proximity to where the pain is being caused in the economy feel the most urgency, yeah, urgent right. about changing it. And, and, when, and the further you get away from that, the I feel like sometimes less urgent the conversation feels. You know, our work on economic policy includes a deep rethink about what prosperity is, where it comes from, how to get more of it, how all this stuff fits together. And we're persuaded that the entire neoclassical framework for understanding this stuff is just nonsense. It's highly mathematized, internally consistent, and completely untethered from anything that happens on planet Earth. Um, And, you know, one of the core propositions within neoclassical economics and neoliberalism is that as justice increases, economic efficiency decreases right? This idea that there are always trade-offs, that you could pay people more, but then there'd be less jobs. You could ask rich people to be taxed more, but they would be less effective as job creators. All of this nonsense. And big trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, uh, you know, um, Arthur Orkin's book, The Big Trade-Off, being kind of the canonical example of that kind of thinking, which permeates everything about how we think about economics in the country. All of this is total bullshit. It's not just wrong, it's the opposite of true, that 
the economy isn't money or GDP or pro- corporate profits, it's people. And the more people you include in the more ways, the, the bigger the economy gets and the faster it grows. And that way of understanding economic cause and effect makes it easier to persuade, we believe, makes it mm-hmm. easier to persuade all people that all, everybody has a stake in addressing the problems that people of color face. That there is no trade-off when you pay people more money other than the bonuses that a few old rich white guys currently get, right? The, in fact, the economy gets better for everybody. Um, is that Does that thinking align with the narratives that you guys are activating or? Oh, it, it, it totally aligns. And I'd add a dimension to what you said, which I, th- I think is implicit in what you're saying, um, which I'll, but I'll, I'll make it a little more explicit is one of those trade-offs is that a lot of people believe, uh, a lot of white people, a lot of middle-class wealthy yeah. and, and upper middle-class white people believe, they may not say it out loud, but do believe that the subjugation of black people is necessary for them to have the vitality that they have. Well, status. And it, yeah, yeah, and it's, it, it's why we right. have all the nimbyism. Yeah. It's why we yeah. have, a, so like one of the trade-offs is in, in some people's mind, which I agree with you, is total bullshit, is that... Like, yeah, it's sad that that's happening to black people, but it's necessary in order. And, and, and I think that that's something that I want to make explicit. I think was implicit in what you're saying. And as it relates to, yes, I agree. Like, so we like to think of a liberation economy, economy that, that where all people have their basic needs met, where all people are feeling safe and secure, where all people have value and feel like they're valued and they're, they're compensated for their value. And that all people feel like they belong, no matter their race, no matter their sexual orientation, no matter gender, so on and so forth. And the reason why we think that vision is powerful is because in that vision, in that in that reality, there is collective well-being. And the collective well-being is coming from a, a relationship between the people and the government in which we are holding our government accountable to taking care of all of us rather than just taking care of the very few, which is what's happening today in what we would call the oppression economy. And that that kind of relationship, that kind of co-governance that, that could take place will actually lead to a place in which we're all prospering. But we think that it's important to ensure that we're focusing on the people who have been most marginalize in our economy because that will be the true barometer of whether we're all thriving yeah. is if we're taking care of the people who have been harmed the most under this expressive systems that we currently have it's, it's also from at least our way of looking at the economy it it's also the greatest opportunity to grow the economy and add value and prosperity to the economy because the least included are the people who have the most to give, to the most to right. contribute. You're, there's, you're, there's the most <laughs> leverage there. Right. There's there's a lot there's a lot more that they that the least included have to contribute to yeah. the economy than the most included. Like try to include Nick more, it's yeah. really hard. Very difficult. <laughs> Extremely difficult. It, it would be hard and very expensive. Yeah. The wealthy I mean the the wealthy like just look at the last tax cut that Trump Right. That was like a record level of wealth transfer in the trillions of dollars. And we're fighting over a few hundred billion 
for something like Medicare for all. That's right. right. Like, no, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. In the last 20 years, we have cut taxes for rich people four times. Yeah. Uh, We have raised the minimum wage a dollar. And, you know, the big frustration, and I'm not sure how you feel about this, is that this is not just Republicans. (laughs) No, no, I'm with you. Yeah. Like, I was a huge Obama supporter, but that man was a straight up neoliberal. And, he did not understand these problems and his administration did not address them in the way that they should have. And it's hard to persuade lots of Democrats that we have been as at fault and in many ways more at fault for these policies than, than our opponents. So it's just, it's extremely painful. Okay. So let, let, let's try to close up on a positive note. Um, What's working for you? Where tell us where things are going right? And, well, I'll, I'll I'll start with something that feels negative, but I believe is positive. I believe a lot of this pushback around critical race theory, uh, things like that, are actually demonstration of progress. Uh, I I believe that it means that we are starting to move into a place where these people that are invested in the status quo are feeling the pressure. And I believe that they're feeling the pressure because of grassroots movements that are pushing conversations into very uncomfortable places. I believe yeah, that's a all great the, point. I yeah. believe all the discussion about defund the police is pushing us into a place where we are forced to have conversations that are very uncomfortable, not just about race, but also like what are the what are the causes underneath the police violence and, and on topics like that. And those are the things that I think that we are that's what makes me and gives me a lot of life that we're having movement because I do think that we're pushing the bounds of where the conversations have been. And that is totally in, in my view. Um, and I don't take credit for this at all, but I, I, I believe that that is from the grassroots movements that are really pushing conversations. No, that's a really good point. It's easy to get depressed about the, the pushback on some of these things, but there is a silver lining in all that, which is at least, at least we're having the discussions, right? Yeah. And, right. And we're starting to think of solutions like, you know, I mean, we did, you, we did a guaranteed income pilot with the expanded child tax. Right. Program. Right. Yeah. So we're starting to see it come to life in policy. And, and it worked <clears throat> fantastically yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. Um, not that we continued it, but it, but for the, when we had it, it, it worked great. Uh, and was so much less expensive and, and, you know, and brought more people into the workforce. It gets back to the idea that these things are pro-growth. You, you can't get people into the workforce if they can't afford to work, if the child care costs exceed uh, their income. So it's a great example to go back to. Do you want to ask the final question, Nick? Yes, sir. Jeremy, why do you do this work? I, I, I've listened to the podcast and I've, I was really excited about being able to answer this question. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, I'm going to say what a lot of your guests say, you know, I grew up in a place where none of the ideas of the economic models fit. And I, as a kid, didn't know that I was having like this, like economic critique of neoliberalism. Like, 
I grew up with some of the smartest people I've ever known that struggled economically. You know, the meritocracy made no sense to me yeah. because it's like, why aren't these people doing well? And and that was a question that I just was always in my head and I've kind of pursued throughout my career. And, and I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to it the older I get. So hopefully within my lifetime or within the generation, uh, we'll have those answers and, and we'll have a different kind of economy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us and best of luck on your work. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me and, and allowing me to come talk about my work. We've talked a lot about the impact of luck, path dependence, and compounding in the economy, how advantages and disadvantages compound over time. But my God, Nick, yeah. that statistic that Jeremy raised that by sometime around mid-century, uh, net wealth for people of color will be zero. That That's just a, a stunning example of negative compounding. Yeah. And, you know, I was really struck by that, too. And of course, as I said, when we in our conversation, it, I'd never thought of it in that way. But it completely aligns with the fundamental economics of neoliberalism, right? In a world right. where you know, the rich continue to get richer and everyone else gets poorer. That fact or that, mm -hmm. that, that claim that Jeremy made has to become true, right? Well, we've, just we've can't seen not. the math. As you mentioned, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonky thing to say, but th this is the math of non-ergotic systems like yeah. markets. Eventually, if left to their own devices, if we could all yeah. live forever like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or some guy would end up owning almost everything. Yes. And everybody else would be left with almost nothing. That's the inevitable math of a market left to its own devices. Right. And the only reason why it doesn't happen is that we none of us live long enough to finish the game. Yeah, exactly. And that reasonable societies take steps and have always taken right. steps to moderate those dynamics. Right. The American middle class was not an inevitable outcome of market capitalism. It no. was an intentional creation of the New Deal. And the fact that it was mostly white people was also intentional. It's, it's yes. very clear that that was the compromise. That was the deal that FDR had to make with the Southern Democrats to get his programs passed was intentionally leaving yeah. black people out of uh, many of its most important uh, elements, such as the minimum wage, which excluded jobs that were predominantly held by black people, uh, as in the mortgage, uh, a lot of the provisions of the GI Bill where when it was passed, well, blacks couldn't go to most of the colleges, um, right. uh, where you couldn't get housing because uh, of redlining of neighborhoods. They couldn't get these federally subsidized mortgages, which uh, built the suburbs, but those mortgages weren't available to black families. This was not, oh, that's a shame that that happened. That was all intentional. It was allowed yeah. to happen because they couldn't pass those programs through Congress without those racist provisions. I think there's one other issue that I don't think we we raised and talked about enough in the uh, in our conversation with Jeremy, and that is it's easy to look at what he and his organization are doing and understand that this is good for 
people of color. But it's good for everybody. That's that's the thing about our economic theory when yeah. inclusion is that go- that golden rule, include more people. It's how you grow the economy. That's right. And that is the middle out point in all of this. The only effective way to build the economy is from the bottom up and the middle out, and uh, which is precisely what the folks at Liberation in a Generation are trying to do. It is a fairer approach, but it's also the best way to make the economy larger and faster uh, growing. You know, as we say, it's uh, it's not a big trade-off. Fairness and growth go hand in hand. And, you know, in an economy where it's people, I mean, it's people That's that right. contribute to the economy. It's people that consume the economy. The only way to grow it is to include more people in it. And when you are excluding what will soon be a majority of Americans from full participation in the economy, uh, you are crippling your economy. Anyway, a super interesting conversation. Uh, Sounds like they're doing great work, and it'll be fun to see how that all evolves. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.